Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton, a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. And I'm Sharon Liu, also a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. Today, our guest is Dr. Tanya Mao, assistant scientist and principal investigator at the Ballam Institute. We'll talk about dissecting thalamal cortical circuits in a systematic way using a scrackum to understand how circuits are wired and how this approach and these maps could help us understand cortical striatal thalamic loops. And of course, Dr. Mao's life story. All this and more coming up. We're here with Dr. Tanyi Mao, Assistant Scientist and Principal Investigator at the Volum Institute in Oregon. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Mao. Hi, good morning, guys. Good morning. So first, we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background. First and foremost, like we want to know the first moment you thought science was just absolutely amazing. Um, so <laughs> I uh, grew up in China. My parents uh, are both in academia, so my dad um, mm-hmm. is a scientist. He's working in the field of public health. He's still working. Now he's 72. Oh. So i grew grown wow. up in a family that uh, was surrounded by scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other main influence was, sometimes it's sort of cliche to say this, but I had a really close friend. Um, who died of uh, leukemia when mm. we were in high school. So when oh I God. was deciding what to do, I want to go to the medical field. But what really turned me into science is when I came to the United States. I started uh, in medical school in Ohio State University, but uh-huh. I visited oh. Johns Hopkins for uh, Christmas oh. the first year when I was uh, in Ohio. And I met graduate students there, and they were talking about their work. That's the first time I realized how the real science is done. So I went back to Ohio. I applied during Christmas time, the graduate <laughs> program there. And I was lucky I got in. So six months later, I moved to Johns Hopkins uh, School of Medicine as a graduate student. Wow, so you started <laughs> medical school first here. Yeah, it's kind of medical uh, and graduate. Uh, it's a university fellowship. Mm-hmm. The first year was taking classes in, in graduate program and medical program. I wasn't this, like sure. We, like There was no lab rotation. I wasn't exposed to science mm-hmm. at the moment. Uh-huh. But I took all the first year medical school classes. But it's really like visiting Hopkins and saw, met with those graduate students and hang out, hearing them talk about, you know, first year you were so enthusiastic. Yeah. And, yeah. and I realized, like, while this is how science is done, I mm-hmm. haven't got an opportunity to expose to that. Although I got a really solid training um, in college from uh-huh. Tsinghua University right. in math, um, physics, and chemistry, mm-hmm. but not like modern biology. Mm-hmm. So that was mm-hmm. an eye-opening experience. So I decided I want to do this. Yeah. Oh. But what what specifically made you interested in neuroscience? Because you got a degree in neuroscience from Johns Hopkins. Yes, I did. Yeah, it's I've been interested in brain for a long time, even as an undergrad. Oh. It's really, you know, I think many of you will agree this mm-hmm. is ultimately the challenge of the humankind, right? Mm-hmm. This is the most complicated machine on the planet. Mm-hmm. can self-evolve and... I think if anyone not being attracted to this would be a problem. So <laughs> yeah. I, I really, yeah, I had a very good teacher in college in neuroscience class too. So oh, that was sort of first exposure. But I didn't realize how the forefront research is done. All mm-hmm. I got is from textbook. This right. is what people have already found. That's mm-hmm. amazing. But when I got to Hopkins, I really realized, wow, this is how people explore unknown. That's mm-hmm. the major difference between a good students who can study textbook mm-hmm. to, like, in the wild. This is, nobody knows <laughs> what there right. is, and you are the one. Mm-hmm. Go figure it Absolutely. out. Yeah. Oh. You are the first person seeing this. I like that as descriptions of scientists as graduate students <laughs> thrown to the wild. <laughs> <laughs> We're both in the wild. Right? <laughs> First, uh, before we get into your graduate work, mm-hmm. what made you come to the U.S.? You mentioned that you um, started uh, medical school at yeah. Ohio State. What drew you to come yeah. to America? Sometimes looking back, part of it is like peer pressure because in my class we have 33 students. 30 were 
doing graduate work in states, oh. and you kind of <laughs> like, oh, is this next step after college? Sure. And the other part is again my family. My dad was um, studying Berkeley in eighties, uh -huh. and he went back to China, started a new branch at that time, um, public health. There was no. Um, Department of Public Health, and he learned this in states and went back to China mm -hmm. and really become a major figure in his field. So mm -hmm. I realized that, especially in the 90s, and mm -hmm. the big gap between, you know, the uh, scientific research in China mm -hmm. and here, and, and peer pressure, like, okay, everybody's doing this, and yeah, sure, <laughs> I, I can do this. Yeah. Um, so it's both component is that I realized the the training in states will be great, mm -hmm. and I will decide where I want to be afterwards. Yeah. And mm -hmm. also, like I've seen from my father's experience, like you can mm -hmm. you go to a totally different um, learning environment, you mm -hmm. can bring good value uh, back. Mm -hmm. So that's how I get yeah. to states. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then when you got to Hopkins to start your graduate work, uh, as you mentioned, you uh, got a PhD in neuroscience. Uh -huh. You worked with Dr. Alex Kolodkin. Yes. And you were working um, on axon guidance, mm -hmm. and specifically you were studying this protein called Michael, which interacts with the plexin receptor and is necessary for semaphorin uh, plexin-mediated axonal repulsion. Yeah. In the abstract to this paper, you say that Michael is a flavoprotein oxidoreductase. <laughs> And its oxidoreductase <laughs> activity is important for its function. What is a flavoprotein yeah. oxidoreductase? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> and why should we? Why is that important? It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you the story. Like this is really the time I realized the power of genetics and the screening type of approach. Mm -hmm. I would never think about okay, flavoprotein. What is that? Yeah. So I'll tell you how this is coming um, through. So um, the lab was working on semaphorin pathways. Many of you know that's one of the most, uh, so far, most uh, important uh, molecules that um, for guiding the axis, ax yeah. you know, and even in a lot of other process as the labeling or, or address for pathfinding, for fighting the target, even the immune system interaction between um, blood vessels and their environment. So it's really an important labeling molecule that gives you address of things. So Alex's lab was working on that. And then um, important next step is that people identify the receptor for it, which is plexin. Mm -hmm. Now, when I joined the lab, what um, the approach was taking is that, okay, what happened when receptor and ligand bind, right? We know this is an important pair of receptors. People show many evidence. If you knock them out, you see all kinds of phenotypes. You know this yeah. is important. But how do this information transform into the intracellular signaling pathway? Mm -hmm. What happened really when this uh, mm -hmm. the receptor didn't, um, you know, bind with the ligand? So the idea was um, we take the intracellular part of the plexin and did an East 2 hybrid. Yeah. Oh, That's how Michael was identified. And there is a parallel uh, screening, which is uh, in the knockout of the, or in fly, when you have the mutants of the plexin, can you do a rescue screen? Mm -hmm. yeah. that, so both ways were going out lab for identify candidate genes that downstream um, of gotcha. the uh, plexin pathway. So Michael was the strongest interaction interactor with the C2 domain of the uh, plexin intracellular part. In the yeast two hybrid. From the yeast two hybrid. But as you guys know, for th at that time, yeast two hybrid is a, a very powerful method in terms of identifying new proteins. Um, yeah. Later, I've tried mass back and, you know, complementary method to identify maybe a different sets because it depends on the context of the interaction. You will identify different partners. But uh -huh. our goal is to identify a complete list of the interactor. Mm -hmm. So Michael showed up, and it's a long protein, like 5,000 amino acids. At the time, sequencing was hard, so it was very difficult to work with mm -hmm. this protein. One of my main contributions that in this is that, um, as you know, East 2 hybrid has a lot of false positive. Right. How to prove this guy is really an interactant and it has a function. So yeah. we did a lot of, um, so I did a lot of work uh, to 
have biochem to prove the biochemical uh, mm -hmm. interaction between the two, and genetically, mm -hmm. the mutant of the mycel and heterozygous of mycel and heterozygous plexin shows the same phenotype as yeah. the semaphore mutants. And we also did some point mutation that uh, abolished the flavor binding function mm -hmm. that this point mutation failed to rescue the mycel mutant. Mm -hmm. But the full length protein did rescue. Mm -hmm. And wow. we later did a little bit of biochemi biochemistry to show that there is a binding um, of um, mycel to the flavor um, protein partners. But the biochemistry part didn't go, I think, as deep as uh, we could now. But at the time, we have all evidence suggesting this is a flavor protein. It's important for um, axon uh, pathfinding. It is downstream of semaphore and plexin. We also cloned the mammalian uh, isoform. In this paper, we did uh, um, in vitro culture experiments that mm -hmm. um, um, this is also important um, mm -hmm. for semaphore and plexin downstream. So that's and okay. and this interacts with the cytoskeleton. So that's the next question, right? Um, so Michael is a gigantic protein, have many different domains. I have still work that's not published with Alex that mm -hmm. we use Michael as the bait, then we find other uh, binding proteins. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I use Michael overexpression, atria tagged uh, flies. We ground the tissue, we did the mass back. We identify five uh, bona fide interactors with Michael, and we identify all the fly mutants. We did a transheterozygous, double heterozygous experiment to show they are true interactors. Among those five, many of them are um, ac uh, um, actin cytoskeleton binding proteins, for example. Yeah. Wow. So this might be, um, we know that um, modulation of the actin cytoskeleton is key to yep. axon pathfinding. Yep. And so this could be yep. uh, at least one of the ways in which this crucial ligand receptor pair modulates yes. this actin cytoskeleton to turn the growth cone. Yes, that's where our hypothesis is. But we have five candidates. I think uh, people in Alex's lab are following up because the evidence we had at the time was pretty strong yeah. um, from genetic point of view. And they also, we also proved they not only interact um, genetically with myco, but also with plexin and semaphorin. Mm -hmm. And they've been shown before it's a directly acting act, uh, cytoskeleton binding proteins. Yeah. So then you moved on to your postdoc research, mm -hmm. first at Cold Spring Harbor and then Genelia. Uh -huh. But same lab. Um, but the same lab. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. So it's both with Dr. Carlos Boda. Yes. Oh, okay. The lab moved from Cold Spring Harbor to Genelia. Oh, okay. I was only gotcha. in Cold Spring Harbor for six months, uh, maybe eight months to gotcha. help lab move. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So we were just looking at your past publications, mm -hmm. and it seemed like you continued this line of like molecular mechanism research a little bit, but at the same time, in um, Dr. Svoboda's lab, you also started more circuit-level analyses, mm -hmm. and we're wondering, did you have in your mind, like, you want to go to a higher-level type of analysis, or what, what, what was your your interest mm -hmm. at that mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And then, Sharon, you also were wondering how Tanyi got into the molecular mechanisms and axon guidance to begin right. with, right? So. Right. Yeah. So going to the axon guidance field, I think at that time is still like amazing, like how amazing this nerve system formation, right? We have axons that are coming from your head all the way to the toe. Mm -hmm. So I was really attracted to um, this problem. And on top of that, I think Alex Lab has a beautiful preparation that can address this problem. I mm -hmm. think, you know, it's a yeah. good question, but you have to have the right way of doing mm -hmm. it. I was really impressed with what the prep um, or there and then Again, uh, a very solid training in genetics from Alex Lab, but you are right. From Alex Lab to uh, to Carl's Lab is a big switch mm -hmm. uh, from fly genetics to more circuit imaging physiology. This switch coming from uh, when I was finishing grad school, I went to Woods Hole for a summer course. Oh. And that really changed the whole thing. So I was deciding what to do as a postdoc, maybe. Mm -hmm. Dave, you will be wondering about it, too. Yeah. Um, so 
I appreciate the power of genetics. Like you can identify new molecules. You can really show their functional relevance. But you know, I identified a new uh, potentially downstream interactors with Michael. You knock them out. You see the same phenotype. You have another molecule. You knock it out. You also see the same phenotype. It's like okay, great. They are in the same pathway. Mm -hmm. But what I was really struggling was okay, what really happened with these five molecules? In this process, no one yeah. can tell you you see an end product, right? I appreciate the power of genetics, but I was hoping, can I learn something that give me a direct functional readout? Mm -hmm. So at the time, I was thinking about two things, physiology or imaging. So I went to Uzho. The summer was really uh, you know, a life-changing event. Mm -hmm. If any of you can get into that program, I would strongly recommend. But if you're, you have questions about it, I'll be happy to. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of cool. you guys around here have been to mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I've been yeah. to Cosmic Harbor summer course, and I've been to, as a new graduate student. I've been to Uzho when I was finishing grad school. Mm -hmm. So I met a lot of incredible scientists there in the summer, and how fun science can be is also you know no comparison. Mm -hmm. Hopkins has been giving me great training, but Uzho is different perspective mm -hmm. of how science can be done. Yeah. and the course I was in, part mm -hmm. of them were imaging and. I saw the power of that, and I think you know that's something you need to be really in an environment to learn. If you are on your own, you have to reinvent the wheel of that people yeah. have been spending like you know smart people spending decades <laughs> of doing. So that's where I decided to uh, looking into uh, imaging lab. Part of the reason I go to Cars Lab is also for some family reasons. If you guys have. You know, double job problem, you will understand. But mostly, I think it's what drives me is like I see the power of genetics, mm -hmm. but I feel like it will be complemented the best if I have a functional readout. Mm -hmm. Physiology is obviously another mm -hmm. way, but I was just attracted by how powerful imaging are. And also, at the time, you see the, the fast rising curve of the tool improvement. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I thought it was the right time doing that. So switching to a brand new lab was not the easiest thing, but I think I'm really glad I I had courage to do that. I may not have it if mm -hmm. I do it again, but um, I thought looking back, that really gave me a totally different perspective of how to do science because the, the kind of approach or a way of approaching problem from Alex lab to Carl lab were totally different, but they have yeah. its own value. Mm -hmm. And so this allowed you to get closer to study the function of the nervous system, yeah. which is something that you really yeah. wanted to get into. Yes. Uh, so in my own lab, the idea is that I, I can combine the genetic power to, you know, I haven't been going that far yet, but that's sort of my idea. Mm -hmm. uh, many systems have a question. It's not it's very difficult to deal with it if you don't have genetic component to it. So what I'm hoping is that I can see questions from both of the world. You know that big gap between people just doing pure molecular um, versus people doing pure systems. Yeah. There, there must be middle ways that we can take advantage of genetic approach that allow us to approach the system problems more repeatably because yeah. genetics give you every time same thing. But if you just go without genetics, then each animal is a little different. Each manipulation is a little different. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I'm hoping down the road my lab could take That's advantage really cool. from the both world. Mm -hmm. So we know that like one of the kind of key things you worked on was uh, developing this, uh, the s Krakum in Carl's lab. And we're just kind of wondering how the idea came about because yeah. that really took a lot of different expertise. Yeah, I shouldn't take all the credit for it. I mm -hmm. think the original, the, the key breakthrough is, so my collaborator Leopold and I mm -hmm. were on this paper, but I, if I recall correctly, was Carl had this idea because people been using people start to using channel adoption mm -hmm. to uh, do circuit type of experiment. If you mm -hmm. look at the time, the first publication, 2005, and Carl Lab sort of realized the power of this were a few first few group of people trying to apply this to. 
But what's really the advantage to in, in credit to Carl's lab is like the lab already have a lot of expertise in manipulating the light, right? So yeah. Carl lab already have laser scanning photostimulation going from previous group of people. What's really happened here is the combination. Mm -hmm. Now a uh, new channel adoption coming. Hey, we can combine what's already we're doing good Mayan Cajun, but mm -hmm. Same idea, use laser around. So in the first look, you say, okay, those are similar ideas, but they are addressing totally different questions because mm -hmm. when you do glutamate on Cajun, you are looking uh, from endogenous, you are activating endogenous receptors. You don't render the cell anything. So the advantage of doing glutamate on Cajun is that you don't uh, add another layer of artificial, you don't change right. the circuit. So channel adoption is great, but the major drawback is that you render the cells excitability. Mm -hmm. How excitable they are yeah. is depending on how much transfection you get. So each right. animal is different. It's really hard to compare across them. So each have their advantages, but the idea for this crank is borrow from, okay, we can uncage using the laser, but we can also activate axons using the laser. And then the next key st step is to, I think again, I think it was Carl's idea, adding TTX to it. Then we can have mm -hmm. more and more uh, uh, spatial resolution. So after you, you don't know whether it's gonna work, <laughs> right? You are stimulating the leftover of the axons from pre synaptic population. Who thought that might you know be good enough and repeatable? Mm -hmm. The I personally appreciate Crancom as the you know it's a very repeatable map. If I do it at different time, the map was just the same for same wow. cell. It's repeatable at single pixel level um, for wow. you know the resolution of 50 microns. So this is you do this experiment one day. And you do the experiment the next day, and the no for the same cell because if it's a different cell, then the transfection of channel adoption is different, right? Oh, what so I mean, repeatable, same cell. Same you cell. have to be same cell, same slice. That's repeatable, mm -hmm. but across the yeah, pressure. the problem is every transfection of channel adoption is different, mm -hmm. right? And also, even every cell of the amount of channel adoption is different. How yeah. can you compare this animal to next animal? Yeah. There's no way. So just to go over S. Crackham, so mm -hmm. you take a slice of cortex, in this case, uh, encompassing both barrel and motor cortex? So just oh, no, the you could because it's too far yeah. away. So it's just yeah. motor, but exactly. you transfect channel adoption into barrel cortex. Yes. And then you are using, is it a two-photon microscope? So this is the two-photon converted one-photon. So the mechanism of moving the laser exactly as two-photon, but we are using one-photon light source. Gotcha. That's why we can move the laser very fast using the Galvo system. It's exactly the same mechanism you moving the laser in two-photon imaging. So we took But you don't need to penetrate too much tissue, so you can use a one-photon system. So Yes, so to, to answer your question, this is the trick. So when you cut the brain slices, right, yeah. you already sort of assume the, the, this brain slices 300 micron. You already reduce it to, you are looking at them as one piece. So you reduce it from like a 3D to 2D. Yeah. Um, so the idea is then we play some optical tricks, then we illuminate the whole column of this 300 uh, micron. So you also, uh, at, in manipulation wise, you are smashing a 3D into 2D. So we are only uh, talking wow. about the 2D uh, representation. If you see the map, it's always a 2D map. So that's why when we illuminate, uh, we penetrate through the whole slice because you have to consider the light scattering as well, right? Yeah. So, but then if you cut your slice right mm -hmm. and you get these cells and cortex, these pyramidal mm -hmm. cells are mm -hmm. oriented so that a lot of their complexity can be captured in one XY exactly. plane. Exactly. Because you have a lot of basal dendrite going in all direction, right? Yeah. You like zap them to like 2D. That's what we are getting. Gotcha. Yeah. So your light is almost like a column and goes through the whole thickness of the slice. And then if that column intersects with any of the axons that were yeah. coming from barrel cortex, then that you will cause them to fire. And then you'll see if you get a response postsynaptic. Um, postsynaptically. Yep, exactly. You got it. Gotcha. <laughs> and so using that technique, what did you find about the inputs from barrel cortex to motor cortex in terms of 
the sub layers of yeah. cortex. So I think where our most contribution is that utilizing this technique, we have found a lot of unexpected um, biological features of the um, circuits. So we look at the feed forward from barrel cortex to their motor cortex target. Mm -hmm. What we found is that this particular layer, layer 5B cells, mm -hmm. which are going out to control the movement, they actually don't get direct sensory input from sensory cortex. What I, we also found, I didn't talk about it yesterday, is that we look at the feedback system. What we found is the cells that will project back to sensory cortex will receive more input from sensory cortex. So there is preferential arrangement oh, wow. in this disynaptic loop that mm -hmm. you cannot really get by other methods. So the trick we have is that we mix uh, channel adoption uh, virus with some retrograde beads in the same pipette. We mix oh. them. We drop them in the same location. Now, the axons of those cells being transfected will go to motor cortex. In the meantime, the mm -hmm. cells that project from motor cortex back to sensory mm -hmm. cortex will get labeled right. by the retrograde beads. We can record from those bead positive cells, which we know send feedback information to sensory, to their neighboring wow. cells. Mm -hmm. So it's really giving us tremendous amount mm -hmm. of uh, new information regarding the circuits. Cool. So we had fun doing that. and. <laughs> And the end product is, again, I didn't have time to talk about yesterday, is that we lay out the whole uh, sensory motor circuits, their property, which layer connect to which layer, what's the strongest connection from layers, what's the weakest. But still, to me, most striking feature is that sensory input don't go to the uh, layer 5B cells, which directly control the movement. Wow. So, like, once you find all these you know, complex connections, like what is the next step people ah. take, like behavioral output? Good or? question. Why should we even bother to do this, right? So when I was the postdoc, I was really interesting, just like layout of the circuit. Mm -hmm. But now I look at this question a little different, like what's the use of this, mm -hmm. right? So um, the more we get into the circuit, the more I start to appreciate um, its usefulness for next step. For example, when we know which part of the circuit or which layers is the main target, uh -huh. we can do genetic manipulations that we take away this component. Mm -hmm. What happened in vivo in a behavior contest, mm -hmm. right? So people, including uh, David Clanfield Lab and Carl's Lab and a few others, have established mm -hmm. very defined whisker-based discrimination task. So then it, based on those, you can ask, okay, whatever the behavior test you, you, you use, you need sensory motor feedback system. Now, if I can very precisely take out just one component of the mm -hmm. circuits, if I know their connectivity, I can have a hypothesis. What does this do? And you really yeah. will begin to interpret your behavior data in a causal relationship, mm -hmm. then you say, random, I inactivate this column, this has happened. But if I know the circuits, I can predict right. what happened if I take away this component. What happened if I active this component? Mm -hmm. And the next step will be, okay, in the heavily trained animal, if I train an animal to do behavior, they become expert. Yeah. What happened between expert and the naive animal at the yeah. circuit level, right? You have to have uh, this baseline of the circuit diagram to be able to even ask this type of question. Mm -hmm. So now, really yeah. looking back, I appreciate a lot more. And that's what I hope my lab can do in the next <laughs> step. Yeah. <laughs> so since you started your own lab, you've been very interested in thalamocortical circuitry uh -huh. and using large-scale viral tracing uh -huh. and S-Crackum to really... Uh, systematically map these connections between cortex and thalamus. Mm -hmm. So first, can you talk a little bit about establishing your own lab and, you know, what of all the science questions you could tackle uh -huh. made you um, really interested in mm -hmm. the thalamic circuitry in particular? Yeah. I would say, like, when I started in my lab, now I look back to my job proposal, how much stuff I'm actually doing <laughs> now mm -hmm. compared to my job proposal. I would say a lot of time is what science guided you. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you why the recent two papers we have, why we get into that. I, like I mentioned to you guys, it was initially a side project with a rotation student. Mm -hmm. 
but it's really the science that dragged us in that direction. So remember, we found that layer 5 B cells have very little input from barrel cortex. Mm -hmm. So we start out by searching for what's the driving force of layer 5 B cells. Uh -huh. um, thalamus is an obvious candidate, so we do find the parts that from thalamus driving layer 5 B, but in the process we realize that there is lack of the complete description mm -hmm. of the uh, circuits. So we really need this information. Yeah. And then we couldn't find it in the literature. We're like, okay, if we want to solve a problem, we want to solve it in the right way, once for all, right? That, yeah. um, so <laughs> I convinced a rotation student, okay, let's start trying like how, how hard is this? <laughs> and then, yeah, and then we feel like if we want to do it, I think that's, again, the right mentality. Mm. You don't do it, or you do it, you do it right. Yeah. We didn't realize how hard it would be if we knew. I don't know whether I can still convince people or convince <laughs> myself to do it right now. <laughs> yeah. Because as I showed you guys, the hardest part is the data analysis. Right. And I wasn't trained all, uh, all the skill sets I have mm -hmm. wasn't necessarily there to do that. We sort of learned along the way. It's really the question how can we get this information from a cortical? Because we work on cortex a lot, and mm -hmm. there are a few other cortical areas we are interested, also facing the same problem. That's where I decided, okay, let's do this systematically mm -hmm. and do it once, and we have all the information we need. Yeah. And that's what drags us to do this large-scale viral tracing. And w since we started doing it, we were trying to figure out, like, why other methods out there were not enough. How can we drill deeper than most yeah. of the approach out there? How can we get some biological information out of large data set? And that's sort of, while we're doing it, we were pushed to answer those questions. Yeah. yeah, actually that's something I found very interesting. So I actually came from a human imaging background. I did diffusion tensor imaging oh, okay. yeah. as an undergrad. Uh -huh. And the way you analyzed or even processed the data really reminded me a uh -huh. lot of that. Yeah. And so I was wondering if at that time, like, is that something someone already started doing or you had to like talk to other people or where did this kind of approach come from? It's really coming from, like, actually, we probably the earliest groups thinking about using large um, viral injection approach to do this. We started mm -hmm. earlier than Alan Blue Institute and Coast Spring Harbor, that's mm -hmm. for uh -huh. sure. But I'm a small lab. I don't have an army. I have two students. <laughs> yeah. And it's a new, <laughs> new lab. But I think the method is not hard to think of, like, oh, this will be useful. What's the hard part is really how can we make this data be useful, right? Yeah. You guys have seen the value of large data set, but also we are the users of those information. Mm -hmm. We want to analyze the data. We want it. The advantage we have is that we are the user and data producer. The disadvantage is that we have very few people, so we want yeah. to focus on particular questions. Mm. We definitely looked into the different like tensor imaging. So at the time, we didn't talk to anyone. Oh. <laughs> we actually showed people um, bioinjection set up both in Alambuie Institute and we in Coastal Harbor because we've been doing virus for my previous projects. Oh. And we really, I think still even now, I think we improve the technique a lot. We can do very consistent injection with very small volume. Yeah. Right, right now is that if you look both uh, what's the technique out there, including Allen Brain Institute and Coast Wind Harbor data set and ours, the injection is no matter how good you are, usually the injection site is still pretty big. So now I'm collaborating with engineers. We're trying mm -hmm. to improve the methods of delivering virus that we can get a lot smaller injection mm -hmm. that allow us to pinpoint to a specific structure. Yeah. So by using nano uh, materials. That, uh, <laughs> but still, I thought, uh, for those who weren't at the talk and are uh -huh. listening to this, I thought it was pretty clever that you used a combination of where you did get inputs from cortex to a particular uh, region of thalamus that was 500 microns wide, right? Yeah. And then if you had a neighboring region that was Subtract. like... 250 microns away, then there's a significant overlap. Mm -hmm. And so you can, you know, figure out, okay, this region did have positive labeling in this uh, area of cortex, mm -hmm. and this region right next door didn't. So the overlap must be negative. Exactly. If the very close overlap yeah. region didn't. Yeah. 
go. And then by by subtracting out yep. all the negative injection sites, you can ar arrive at a much smaller mm -hmm. region of thalamus. Yeah, that's really our, one of our major tricks that make this data set very different from uh, others because we have to do overlap injections because this gave us tremendous extra information, also much, much higher resolution. Yeah. Um, based on the Nyquist criteria, this overlap sampling is necessary to achieve uh, the resolution that's required. So when I, when I came up with this idea of subtracting, we're like, oh, things suddenly you see the light, like, oh, <laughs> this is how it yeah. should be working. Yeah. <laughs> so that trick was really... I think set this apart from a lot of, and that, because most time if you look at injections, people say, oh, I want to inject in this area, go there. In another area, they are too sparse. There's no overlap. Then you just can't get a lot of information out of them. And so what were maybe two or three big findings? So then you mapped all the cortical inputs to thalamus. Um, thalamus to the cortex. thalamus inputs to cortex. Uh -huh. And then you found that there's this dorsal... Uh, medial, there's a lot of nuclei in the dorsal medial part of thalamus. Is that correct? Oh, no, 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 that's for stratum. Oh, the cortical right. stratum. Okay. So, so what were some of the big then, yeah. findings yeah. of the... So first, like, we were really happy that we identified part of the thalamus that specifically driving layer 5B cells. Yeah. Um, that's where we, what's, that's where we started, oh, yeah. And the second part is that, so you know a lot of uh, cortical areas, for example, infralimbic and prelimbic, yeah. they are very close to each other, right? Yeah. But their functions are related but slightly different in fear conditioning. So based on this data, we could compare like two sub-targets from thalamus. So we add this to the source of these two targets together and we can subtract. So the really useness for this data set is that we can identify very specific parts that shared by two sub-regions, two targets, or the unique part that distinct these targets. We are trying to put channel adoption or hello adoption back into the shared or unique part to address, okay, are there related functions coming from the driving force of the shared thalamic region, or are there difference coming from their uh, distinct thalamic inputs? So that's what I think will be the next application of this data set. Huh. The other very important thing is that based on the map we have, we deduce the optimized injection site for all of the cortical targets. So I can tell people, okay, if you are interested in secondary motor cortex, I can tell you exactly where you should go to target your channel adoption or heterodopsin yeah. to be able to drive this very specific target. So I think mostly I have a lot of collaborators just come to the lab using the data the way we probably will never you know, cover. Yeah. So, but for us, we're still focusing on specific pathways related to motor. But I think this data set become important resource for yeah. people yeah. to do the future manipulation. For example, you want to know where you can begin to image or record the parts, and you know where you can drive their thalamic input. Mm -hmm. So this yeah. has become the roadmap for studying yeah. pharmacortical function. Yeah. So I think this is a very interesting like process and progression from your original research question to like in tackling these questions because you want to do it right and get at the right complexity and specificity you want, you started doing some kind of tech development too, mm -hmm. including the you know, the systematic analysis to what you were just talking about mm -hmm. with like the very specific injections uh -huh. with engineers. And so I was wondering, you know, going forward with the current research questions you have or future research questions, do you see yourself further developing, like a big part of your future direction as also developing to these develop. techniques? Yeah, yeah, so that's an interesting question. Like I said, sometimes you have a plan, but science is <laughs> dragging you to a yeah. different plan. So this was not what I planned. Mm -hmm. So. I'm still doing a lot of like two photon imaging, looking at specific pathways. Mm -hmm. um, that's uh, in a much smaller scale of what I just I presented see. here. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, I feel like we understand the need of the biologist. And we also see sometimes there is a need for 
uh, developing a technique to be able yeah. to answer the question. Then if I think we are the right person doing it, I will go for it. For example, I just got a Brain Initiative grant from this big project. Yeah. And something I proposed there was totally different. I proposed to work on technology that will allow us to do more in vivo imaging for slow transmission, for example, dopamine, serotonin, mm -hmm. downstream events of those guys, then we can monitor them in vivo. So it's a very yeah. different project. But again, it's like it's coming through when we start doing some question, we're like, okay, this is not available. We have to develop tools <laughs> to do it. Yeah. So it's not mostly planning away, but when you start working on question, you realize we are limited by tools mm -hmm. most of the time. I don't know how you guys appreciate yeah. in neuroscience, mm -hmm. and I think for graduate students listening to this, um, that down the road, being able to have skill sets, you can do quantitative analysis, you are not afraid of doing tool development will yeah. take you a long way because um, like I said, oftentimes it's not like we don't know what are the important questions. It's what we cannot do, right? right. For yeah. example, if without micro certain microscope, you just cannot see things. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but if people say, hey, we determined just to develop the microscope to do it, that may not be for everybody, but some people have expertise can do it. Mm -hmm. I don't think I will be like a pure tool developer, but yeah. I've have a, had a taste of it when I was a postdoc. Mm -hmm. So I'm not afraid of using new tools. Mm -hmm. So I hope we are kind of people sitting in the middle that we, we know the need. If we can help with tool development, mm -hmm. then w we have the uh, skill sets to do it. I yeah. will do it. That's really cool, though, like thinking about pushing the your your limitations yeah. rather than just being limited by... Wait freedom. for somebody yeah. else yeah. to do it. But sometimes you have to evaluate your right, time, right? right? That's the only limited resource is your time. Mm -hmm. Am I the best person doing it? Mm -hmm. I wasn't asking myself this too much, but sometimes you're like, mm -hmm. okay, it's already almost there, then you just have to go for it. Then you can learn new things too. Yeah. So, so it's like an adventure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the last question is um, looking at sort of future directions of your lab, um, mm -hmm. and you started to present a little bit about after mapping a lot of these thalamocortical projections, you wanted to look at thalamostriatal projections mm -hmm. and also cortical striatal. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that there are these proposed cortical striatal thalamic loops that sort of shuttle activity between these three brain structures and that are thought to be very important for animals' behavior. So can you describe sort of what you found in terms of how thalamic and cortical inputs are integrated in striatum and what this might mean for these sensory motor feedback loops? Yeah, so in the part of the data I didn't talk much of the detail, I saw it touched the, a little bit in the end of my talk, then what we are really interested, because we already have a very solid thalamocortical data set, striatal is another major target of the thalamus, so we basically yeah. already have the data for thalamostriatal pathway, and we screened in the literature from open public database that identify a sets of cortical straddle injections. So what we are doing is that we integrate this two big data set. We find ways to integrate the data that way. Then we can look uh, thalamal straddle, cortical straddle, thalamal cortical, cortical thalamus, <laughs> this you know, triangle interaction because yeah. they are really the key. And remember the other major target from the basal ganglia is the thalamus. So the data I didn't show is that yeah. we analyze the part of the thalamus that uh, receive output from basal ganglia. They have very, very different properties from their neighbors who don't receive basal ganglia mm -hmm. output. They are very important. Wow. Yeah, the other important thing is that I think looking at interactions between thalmostrato and corticostrato pathway um, is important because they both go there. Do they converge through the same points? Is the thalamus, part of the thalamus that go to cortex have the same shared targets of the same part of cortex that goes to stratum? Mm -hmm. We analyze a lot of those data, mm -hmm. so that's what I, I hope we'll present it to you guys uh, very soon. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
Yeah, and then I think in most of this anatomical study, I was talked talk to Rob Malenka yesterday. Actually, I personally think what's really important, we need to have functional verification. I showed you guys examples yeah. that when you have overlap between axon and dendrite or a cell projector area, doesn't mean they have the form synapse. So what we are doing, yeah. some major effort is that we look, functional circuits, for example, we play with different channel adoption wavelength how the interaction between thalamus strata and cortical strata inputs interact with each other. We found amazing heterogeneity from even within the thalamus when they project to strato, people thought they have certain plasticity functions, mm -hmm. uh, plasticity features. Yeah. We found further heterogeneity even among this one group of axons. Mm -hmm. So I think this again shows us the power of large-scale, high-super. When you have a complete data set, you identify all the possible targets, then you go through them, you look at how they interact, then you get a very different picture mm -hmm. from when you were randomly sampled some inputs. So yeah. I'm hoping the physiology and optogenetics experiment will take the anatomical data to the next mm -hmm. level. And then we can start addressing what you are asking, mm -hmm. how relevant if we take one element out uh, in behavior, or I activated one of the element. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, we're further and further looking into this complexity, and mm -hmm. sort of what you showed yesterday, too, towards the end of your talk, mm -hmm. is the grouping, the clustering mm -hmm. of cells in the striatum mm -hmm. based on their cortical inputs, yes. and how you, if you play with the threshold, threshold, then you mm -hmm. get different yeah. numbers of clusters. Yes. At what point or what criteria do you use to stop at a certain level? Because if you keep going, yeah. you could probably get at like 100 clusters exactly. or something. Yeah. No, thresholding, anything you threshold is always arbitrary, mm -hmm. right? That, that we should keep that in mind. What's the criteria? Like where you stop? It really mm -hmm. depends on what question. You can go finally to every single voxel. Right. They can be your own cluster. I think what's really give us feedback is, that, okay, how consistent we are with what people already know. For example, when I said cluster uh, number three is because people already roughly talking about three parts of the strata. Mm -hmm. We say if we give an N equals three, how does it look, right? Yeah. It's consistent with what people were roughly defining, but now I give you a quantitative description mm -hmm. of three parts. And then when we give this N number to 15, what you mm -hmm. saw is that dorsal lateral right. part is still a, a big a chunk, big, yeah. but this tiny corner become like further mm -hmm. chopped. So you know that this medial part is a huge converging point. Mm. And their property are very, very different from dorsal lateral because when you get into 15, dorsal lateral is still one unit. Mm -hmm. And we've increased this to like 62, right? Mm -hmm. You start to see a little feature, but it doesn't make sense to go smaller and smaller because uh, as yeah. of people describe cell type, every cell is different yeah. in the end, right? But when you group them, you have to think what's the biological relevance. Right, right. So, but I think N equals three is the good starting point because that's what people in the field be talking about. But you see when we give n equals three, then the end part, the most posterior part, mm -hmm. clearly were segregated from other like right. region we define. So we know this is a new or novel subdivision people uh -huh. been ignoring. It's really based on your best judgment with what biology people already know. Mm -hmm. We don't want to ignore what people have been studying right, right, for right. decades, right? But, yeah. um, but we hope with the quantitative methods, those features will be revealed using the way we are doing it. Well, with that, we'll move to a couple <laughs> of quick rapid-fire questions. Oh. These are meant to be fun and light. So <laughs> okay. I will start by asking, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice would you give to yourself? Don't rush in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> Because, like I told David, like nobody cares how long you're in grad school. You <laughs> have to ask yourself, what do you want to get out of grad right. school? It's the training, no matter yeah. what you do in the future. How many papers you have? Of course, it's a huge side benefit that if you have great papers, right? But if you don't, you have very good training that carries you a long way. Yeah. But if you have papers, great. That's sort of a, a bonus. But you have to ask yourself, am I ready to be an independent scientist or anything? 
because you think about your training, how to problem solving, how to start from scratch to a project, yeah. and how to write, how to read, how to communicate with people. This skill sets you have, you can do anything. That's how I feel. Mm. I, I can do any other jobs if I really wanted to and I had to. So I think take your time to really gain training. And if you ask yourself which lab you want to go to do PhD, go for the lab you can get a solid training. Mm. Great advice. Take your sweet time. <laughs> 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 but you don't want to be lazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of mentality you should have is that yeah. don't rush yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that everybody struggles, so don't think you are alone. <laughs> <laughs> that's good advice. The next one is who is your hero or heroine? And they don't have to be a scientist necessarily. Don't have to be scientist, but it happened to be a scientist. No, no, <laughs> uh, Simo Benzer, like I read his little book when I was a graduate student. I can see how <laughs> science can be done. And the other one is Alan Hodgkin. I oh. named my son after him, Alan. So, <laughs> um, really, those are the guys I look up to. Mm -hmm. When I struggled in science, I asked myself, okay, if people have quick papers here and there, do I want it? You get so much temptation in your daily life. But uh, when I struggle, those are the guys I look up to. And the last question is, what's your favorite guilty pleasure? That's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I would have very different answer if uh, a few years back, but I have a young kid, so uh, your perspective of life changed. So guilty pleasure answer, I'll just keep it for myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's very like when you have family, Family means kids, but because of two people, things really doesn't matter. But now, when I was a postdoc, I had a young kid, I feel guilty all the time because I felt like I wasn't good enough for postdoc compared to I was in a very competitive lab because everybody worked longer hours. And when I get home, I wasn't good enough for mom because oh. all the moms were spending time. So I felt guilty all the oh. time. But then I sort of stepped out of this negative mm -hmm. circle by looking at, you know, this is the best I can do, and things yeah, worked yeah, out. So sure. I don't really treat myself guilty pleasure <laughs> in a way, but... Okay. but a great I, answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for speaking yeah, about us. This is an awesome conversation. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by Sharon Liu, Ada Yi, Luis Guillaume, Eddie Alberon, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, and myself, David Lipton. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of NeuroTalk in our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-West.org. This is NeuroTalk, I'm Sharon Lee. And I'm David Lipton.